So we're now going to ask Tulsi and uh, Tulsi, sorry, and Baba to bring us our reading. Over to you. Thank you. Good morning, church. Happy Sunday. Uh, today's Bible reading is taken from the book of First Peter, chapter three, verse one to twelve. Verse one: Wives, in the same way, submit yourself to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Two: When they see the purity and reference of your lives. Three. Your beauty shall not come from outward adornments, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold, jewelry, or fine clothes. 4. Rather, it should be of that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. 5. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands. Like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him a Lord. You are our daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as a weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. 8. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. 9. Do not repay evil with evil, or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. 10. For whoever will love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. 11. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. 12. For the heights of the Lord are on, on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Baba and Toyosi. Well read. Well, we've been, been looking at uh, 1 Peter, a great book, but written to a turbulent time in the church where many Christians around the uh, in particular Asia Minor, were being persecuted and punished for being Christians. A, a time of suffering for the church, a time of difficulty, a time of uncertainty. And uh, so we come to this passage now where Peter is dealing with this uncertainty and this difficulty and he drops a bombshell on the 21st century. Well, if it's a bombshell on the 21st century, it was a bombshell indeed on the 1st century for completely different reasons. Because this passage is highly controversial. One of the most controversial passages, in fact, in the New Testament. And some, some women rail against this idea of submitting to their husbands. Regarding a whole idea as draconian and demeaning. Well, some men have used this passage to justify female uh, female uh, subjugation and believing it to be a mandate for domestic tyranny. But neither of these views is the biblical one. 
And neither of these views understands exactly what Peter is trying to say through the Holy Spirit to the Church of Christ. The fact is, this passage is critically important for the 21st century church because it's all about the nature of beauty and the power of prayer. The nature of beauty and the power of prayer. And if you want to be a beautiful Christian, this is a passage to listen to and to read and to study and to take to heart. And if you want to be a powerful Christian, again, this passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 to 12, is a passage where God can speak to you and give power to your prayers if you understand and accept what Peter is trying to say to the church. And the first thing he says is this, and it's this simple. And he says it, he says, beauty is not skin deep. Beauty is not skin deep. We live in a world that's obsessed with beauty. And what we often see is not beauty, but parody. We see people called beautiful because they've got buttocks here and there and they stop the movement of eyebrows they've got lips that make look a bit like a koi carp you know they have uh, dimensions of their bodies that are far in it, 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 it makes them sort of look, like a, look, look like a barbie doll rather than a real human being and they think that's beautiful and it's not peter is saying beauty is not skin deep he says it quite clear in verses three to four he says your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold and jewellery and fine clothes. He says, rather it should be that of your inner self. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. And remember that Peter is writing to a church that is suffering persecution. Persecution not because of what it believed, but because of what people perceived it believed. When persecution comes upon the church, and it will come upon the Christian church in the 21st century, I promise you that, especially in the West, it will be not because of what Christians really believe, but what people believe that Christians believe. And often that's false, it's a lie because it comes from Satan, <clears throat> the father of lies. If Christians live the beautiful lives that God calls us to live, and people saw that beauty... Trust me, they would not be sucked in by the lies that people tell about Christians. And there were two great lies, two great accusations levelled against the early church. The first was that Christians were anti-state. And this is, what, this is exactly what Peter's dealing with in the previous chapter, chapter 2. He tells that Christians should be submissive to the state. They indeed, as Paul says later on in Romans, we should pray for the state. We should be supportive because the state is put there by God to bring order and control to people. As we heard last week, that doesn't mean we obey the, church, uh, uh, the state above uh, God. Of course not. When there's a conflict there, we obey God first. But in most things, 99% of the time, we, we obey the state because what the state is bringing is law and order into the world. And we need to be supportive of that law and that order. And, Pete, and Peter's saying this in the first part of, of chapter 2. And then he talks about slaves and, 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 and slaves and masters. And he says that slaves should submit to their masters, even if their masters are harsh. Because, again, in the Roman Empire, one of the things that Christians were, were, uh, were being uh, slandered for was saying that they teach slaves to revolt and rebel against their masters, which wasn't true. This isn't because Christianity in any way supports slavery. It does and it never has. And in fact, Christianity was very much behind a movement of people like Wilberforce that brought an end to slavery in this country. 
But you need to remember the church in the first century, 60 to 70 percent of early Christians were slaves. The Roman Empire was full of slaves, professional slaves. Most of the professions in, the, in Rome were slaves. Doctors, those who worked on your teeth, solicitors, those who worked with law and what have you. Many, many people, even highbrow people within Roman society were slaves. It was a whole society built on slavery. And so to rebel against it and simply to discard it would have caused chaos. In fact, what's interesting is that the reason that you, you'll find the New Testament doesn't teach uh, slaves to rebel against their masters is because it would have caused those, those, those Christians and those slaves to be, to be killed. This happened three times in Rome. There were three revolutions by slaves against the state, and each one was bloodily suppressed. The most famous one you may, you've probably heard of was the First Civil War, um, otherwise known as the Gladiator War, or the War of Spartacus. And of course it was made in a very, into a very famous film with Kurt Douglas. And that began in 73 BC, when 70 slaves, gladiator slaves, um, took over a, a gladiator school in Capia and actually then were, killed their, their, um, their, their owners and then they defeated a small Roman force that was set to capture them. And in over two years, that group of 70 grew to uh, 120,000 families, uh, people, men, women and children, a massive horde of, of, of slaves rebelling against Rome. And they were able to defeat several small um, uh, battles that took place with very small Roman military forces. And eventually the Senate decreed that Marcus Licinius Crassus, the famous Roman general, should go and defeat these slaves. And he did that brutally, terribly, and defeated in 71 BC, utterly defeated Spartacus on the field of battle. And then Crassus did something wickedly evil. He, from the 45 miles from Capua to um, Rome on the famous Appian Way, he erected a series of 6,000 crosses. On each of those crosses, he hung a living slave. For months and months afterwards, all you could smell as you walked along the Appian Way was the smell of rotted flesh. Hideous. And that's why the, the Christian church doesn't teach slaves to rebel because it would never have got them anywhere. The Christian faith is not pro-slavery. It was pro-life and pro-people. So the first thing of this great slander was that the Christians were against the state, and it's not true, and you find this in the teaching of Peter here. But also, very importantly, the other accusation was that they're anti-family. How are they anti-family? Well, this is interesting. They're anti-family because they empowered the wife. They empowered the wife. And they taught that men and women were equal. You see, the society of Peter was a very, very sexist society. And Christian often, Christianity has often been accused of being sexist and of being generally treating women as inferior beings. Now, I'm sure that there's many churches that perhaps have done that. There's certainly many men that have done that and many cultures that have done that. But in the first century, Christianity was absolutely revolutionary. And it needs to be. One of the reasons behind this, this lie that Christians were anti-family was because Christianity taught that men and women were equal before God. But they were equal, they were both made in the image of God. And this scared the Romans because they didn't believe the wife was equal. 
You see, what happened if, if a husband became a Christian, then it was quite easy. He would simply tell his wife that the family were becoming Christians. The whole family would become a Christian. It wasn't, a, it wasn't an issue. But what would happen if a wife became a Christian? When a wife wasn't allowed to have her own mind and have her own view, had to simply agree with whatever the husband believed. And that was the fact in the first century. And this wasn't just an issue of the Romans. It was true of the Greeks. It was true of the Jews. Under Jewish law, women, a woman was an object. She had no rights and was owned by her husband, as he might own a donkey or a sheep. On no account could she leave him. She could never seek divorce, but he could divorce her for as little as talking to another woman. The Greeks were exactly the same. In Greece, a wife had only one duty, and I quote, to remain indoors and be obedient to her husband. The wife had no independence outside her husband and no mind of her own. In Greece, she could be divorced at the mere whim of the husband for almost anything as long as he returned her dowry, her bridal price. In Rome, under Roman law, the woman had no rights. She remained a child as long as she lived. First of all, she, she belonged to her father. That was Roman law. He had the power of life and death over his daughter. And then at a certain point, he would sell her for a bridal price to her husband, and she would then belong to her husband. When a woman married, um, she was completely subject to her husband and under his mercy. The famous Cato the Elder said this, If you catch your wife in an act of infidelity, you can kill her without impurity, sorry, without impunity, without a trial. But if she were to catch you in infidelity, she would not venture to touch you with her finger. Indeed, she has no right. Roman matrons were forgiven, sorry, were forbidden from drinking wine. And another Roman called Ignatius beat his wife to death because he discovered her drinking a bottle of wine. Roman wives were divorced at the drop of a hat. Sulpius Gallus divorced his wife because she once appeared on the streets without wearing a face veil. Pubulus Sempronius Sophus divorced his wife because she once went to public games without his permission. Professor Barclay writes, in the Roman moral code, all the obligation was on the wife and all the privilege was with the, was with the husband. This was the problems that the wives faced in the first century. This was the situation into which Peter is writing. If a wife was to become a Christian, what could she do? She was not allowed to make a decision for herself according to Roman law. And so Peter spent six verses answering this question. He told them to be different to other women and to learn the art of true beauty. And this beauty is relevant not just to women. It's very much relevant to men as well, because it's the beauty of the Jesus people. It's a beauty of the kingdom of God. It's a beauty that Jesus wants to see in every believer. And the first thing he says about the beauty, as we heard earlier on, is that beauty is not skin deep. You're not going to get it by applying makeup. True beauty doesn't even concern the skin or the appearance of the face. It's not a matter of how you decorate your face or how you decorate your body. It doesn't, that doesn't make you beauty beautiful. Peter says that true beauty is not on the surface. He says your beauty should not come from outward adornment in verse 3. Outward adornment. How much we believe we make people beautiful by using 
makeup. Makeup, folks, is just make-believe. It's making up for what you don't have. It's trying to make you something that you're not. That's what makeup is. That's why it's called makeup. You haven't got it, so you're making up for it. It's not true beauty. It's not a cover-up. So many people are convinced as long as they spend so much money on making themselves, and then every night they take their beauty apart and go to bed. You know, it's, it's fascinating because we're almost back in the way that they were in, in, in first century Rome. The Romans were obsessed with beauty and what beauty was like. I've got some slides here to show you about this. And Romans were convinced about their hairstyles. They loved elaborate hairstyles. In fact, they used to go all the way across to, uh, to um, the Romans, obviously, were Roman. They were dark-skinned dark and, and dark-haired. And they loved the idea of blonde. And so they used to get import loads of blonde hair from Germany and from Scandinavia. And this hair was converted into wicks and would make them look beautiful. You can see here some of the, the, um, the beautiful illustrations of how they would spend hours and hours decorating their hair or having these fancy wigs to wear day by day. And this situation was encouraged by the Roman men. Um, the famous Roman Lucius Valerius wrote this. He said, why should men grudge women their ornaments and their dress? Women cannot hold public office. They cannot be priests or gain triumphs. They have no public occupation. What can they do then but devote themselves to adornment and to dress? There was no other way to go for women. They had no other opportunity for responsibility or excelling in the Roman world. And so the whole idea of beauty was greatly enhanced and believed to be very, very important. And, and adornment, you know, pearl, the pearl was the, interesting that Jesus uses the pearl of great price. Pearls were seen as the most precious stones that they were at that time. Julius Caesar, for example, once bought his wife Servilia, um, a pearl that cost £62,250. Nero had a room elaborately decorated completely with pearls and people used to um, cover their clothes and their shoes with pearls and with emeralds to show their wealth. Seneca spoke of women in Roman times who had two or three fortunes hanging from their ears. In other words, you know, 500,000 pounds hanging from each earlobe. You know, ridiculous amount of um, extravagance. And Caligula's wife um, was once presented by her husband a dress that cost just under half a million pounds. It was very much part of the Roman culture. And the, the Apostle Peter says, that's not beauty. That's just excess and extravagance. That's not beauty at all. And not only is it not beauty, it's, it's exclusive. What happened in, in the Roman society was that beauty was, was only, could only be afforded by the wealthy people. But the slaves and the working class people became an underclass of ugly people because they couldn't take place. They couldn't buy the wigs. They couldn't wear the jewellery. They couldn't wear the clothing. It was exclusive, this view of beauty. And it was superficial because it was never real beauty. They used to make up like we do today with what their form lacked. So if they were getting too fat, they would wear loose-fitting robes and togas. If they were too thin, they would use padding to put shape into where they didn't have it. They used makeup, rouge, to make the cheeks look lively and redder. And they used makeup just like we use makeup, and obviously the wigs and the jewellery. It was just superficial. But Peter says quite tellingly, it is passing. It is passing. He says this in this, uh, he says he describes it as fading. And how true that is. 
You may not believe that I once had very lush, dark black hair. Now look at it. Some people lose their hair like Terry. You know, it, you can't keep that beauty. And we get creased and things start to head north and become saggy. And in that beauty we once had, perhaps when we were younger, we lose it. It's fading. And so Peter says that's not the nature of true beauty. True beauty isn't in the outward form. It is in the inner self. He uses a wonderful expression in the Greek. He, in verse 4 he says your inner self. And that quite literally in the Greek is the hidden person of the heart. The hidden person of the heart. That's where beauty is. And that's what Christians have got to start to spend time developing. That inner person of the heart. That's where true beauty is. That's where beauty is seen in the person. It's not on the outside. It's inside. Remember what... Uh, but God said to Samuel the prophet who was trying to choose a king and was looking at all the grandeur of the sons of Jesse trying to find a majestic son the, the, the kingly son the masculine, muscled, well-looking son and God whispers to him and says Samuel, Samuel what are you doing? He says the Lord does not look at the things people look at people look at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart Folks, it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're tall or big, thin or fat, whether you're muscles or not muscled. True beauty is in here, the inner person of the heart. Each one of us can be beautiful if we allow God to shape us, if we believe his word, embrace his word, mm -hmm. submit to his word. You can be beautiful. <laughs> you can shine. And the great thing is it's not a fading beauty. You'll carry that shine to your grave and beyond. Because it would be even more polished in heaven, trust me. We've got a chance of being beautiful people if we learn to build the inner person, that beautiful inner person. And literally, um, he says that unfading beauty, that means it's incorruptible. It can never fade. It's something that can never wear out. So much of our beauty wears out. You put makeup on and it wears off. It comes off. You know, you, you colour your hair and it grows out. You cut your hair and it grows. I mean, how many people are sporting, you know, lockdown bouffants, huge hair because they've been locked down while the barbers and the hairdressers have been shut. You know, folks, that's not true beauty. True beauty is in here. God, by his spirit, can shape you and make you beautiful people. If only you allow them to be. And so what Peter's saying is that you will never win your husbands because you have no voice in the Roman Empire. You're never going to win them by shouting and by being aggressive and by being manipulative. You're never going to win them. Win them by true beauty of the inner self, he says. He says to them, be gentle. And the whole word there is the opposite of being pushy and hard and aggressive. Win them by the true beauty, you say. Someone who's not grabby but giving. Someone who's not self-centred but caring. And he says, be quiet. This doesn't refer to the person not to talk. That's, that's not what he's saying here. He's not saying, wives, shut up. He's saying, don't be, don't be demanding. It's a person, someone who doesn't get into great emotional mood swings and, and become, um, what's the word for over-pushing in, in, in their conversation to, 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 you know, nagging. It's that kind of manipulative use of the voice. He's talking about a quiet beauty that we all need to have. And many, of course, uses the S word. Oh, here we go. The S word. He says, talks about submission in verse one. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. <gasps> you can hear the hackles rising in some people. Some people. But it's not 
It's not talking about becoming a doormat. Far from it. It's becoming a doorway to a new way of behaving, to more opportunities. We need to put this in context. And I wish Christians would do this when they read scripture. Put it in context. Verse 1 of this chapter gives you the context. Verse 1, what does it say? It says, so that, so that if any of them do do not believe the word, it's husbands, so that any of the husbands do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives. That is the context. That we may convince others, not because we're loud and aggressive and shouty and leery, we will convince others by the inner beauty of the inner person, that people will see Christ in us and they have no answer for it. That's why we submit to our husbands, ladies. That's why we submit to Christ, men. That's why we submit to God, Christian people. Because it's not about us. It's not about our will, it's about his will. All Christians need to submit. Paul talks about this. He, he takes it up in Ephesians 5.21. He says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husband. Notice that, your own husband, not to men. It's in a, it's in a relationship of marriage. Well, submit yourselves to your own husband as you do to the Lord. But then he says this to men. He says this, he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5.25. He says, husbands, your model for loving your wife isn't just to be submissive. It's to be Christ-like to such a degree as to, to sacrifice your life as Christ sacrificed his life upon a cross. And how did Christ live? He lived a life of submission, guys. He submitted himself totally to the will of the Father. So when uh, 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 he was face of a cross and he said to God, take this cup from me, he then said, not my will, but yours. What, he, uh, what Peter and Paul is saying to the church is this, that all of us need to submit to each other. And Paul says that. Paul says that in chapter 5, verse 21, the whole ethos of talking to the Ephesian church about family relationships and family dynamics is under the basis of submission. Ephesians 5, verse 21, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let me say that again. Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. You're never going to have a good relationship if you're both pushing and struggling against each other. But if you're seeking to live a life of Christ, of submission, then you'll see beauty in that marriage mm. and you'll see beauty in that relationship. If you're trying to take, Jesus says, just give. Give is more powerful than taking. People will often take things that don't belong to them and they never give them the satisfaction they're looking for because they've taken something. We need to learn the power of giving and giving each other to each other in our relationships. The beautiful life is not found in fighting each other, not by being pushy, self-focused, self-obsessed, very much like our modern culture. I don't see beauty very much in our modern culture. I see aggressive people fighting for their rights. Do you know what? Rights come with responsibilities. And we have a culture that says, that's my right. But I never hear them say, that's my responsibility. And if we learnt about the importance of responsibilities in our culture, we'd have a far more gracious and loving culture without all the rubbish and litter that we see people dumping out their cars because they can't be bothered to take their rubbish home. Or people who speak to other people as if they're the dirt upon the sole of their shoes because that person works in a shop. 
or because that person's meant to be doing them a service. And it's my right. It's not your right, folks. It's your responsibility to live as a good, gracious and loving human being. Let's talk more about responsibilities in this world because we have a responsibility as Christians mm. to model Jesus, to live like Jesus, to submit like Jesus to the will of God, to be beautiful like Jesus. We are to be the Jesus people, the beautiful people, part of this revolution of the kingdom of God. And that's not found by us claiming and demanding our rights, but it's found in, by us submitting to the will of God and bringing love and compassion into this world in which we live. Peter says this in verses 8 to 9. He says, finally, all of you be like-minded. Be sympathetic, he says. Love one another. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil for evil or insult for insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Peter is saying, you want a beautiful marriage. Deal with the inside. Put beauty there. And then you'll get a beautiful marriage. Then you'll win your non-believing husband. Then you'll win your non-believing wife. Then you'll convince your non-believing neighbours. Then you'll convince your non-believing family because they will see something powerful in you, something that's countercultural, something that's beautiful, that's radical, that's Christ-like. And so he ends by saying not just that beauty is not skin deep. He finally ends by saying this. Peter says the power is more than big muscles. Power is more than big muscles. For men, what's what's beauty? Beauty is going down the gym. Um, I've been on many times working in Afghanistan and Iraq, and everyone goes on there to get a buff body. You know, we spend hours going down the gym when we're not working. The idea of getting fit and getting getting powerful. And yet the beauty of human beings is not, for men, is not seen in this body. It's seen in developing the beauty of the inner self. The inner self. He says, verse 7, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Treat them with respect so that nothing will hinder your prayers. You see, when we don't treat people with respect, when we aren't submissive to each other and loving, when we don't do what uh, Peter talks about in verses 8 to 9, when we don't do that, when we live this aggressive, self-grabbing kind of lifestyle, do you know what happens? Our prayers start to die. The power of our prayer starts to die. Because the power of prayer is found in submitting to the will of God. So often that's where we get it wrong. We pray for things that are inappropriate to pray for. You know, if you're praying to win the lottery, don't bother because God's not going to let you win the lottery just because you want lots of money. If you pray that God will change you to make you a beautiful person, oh, then you may start to see some success in your prayers because you're aligning your prayer life with the will of God and with the scriptures and the Bible. That's where power comes into our prayers. When you start to pray for the things that are kingdom values, that are bringing the kingdom of God into this life. When you pray for things and you live an immoral life or you're not showing the respect and love or you're a very critical person and you're always criticising others, or when you're gossiping behind others' backs, God's not going to hear your prayers because that sin is going to start to become a barrier between you and God and your prayers and God. What does James say? James 5, 16, he says this, the prayer of the righteous person is powerful and effective. And if your prayers have been hindered in your Christian life right now, you perhaps need to ask God, am I submitting to your will? 
Am I living a life of submission? Is there some sin in my life that's stopping my prayers being effective and powerful because I'm not living a righteous life? True power is not found by working out in the gym and being able to bench press 180 pounds or whatever. True power is found in an inner change here by the Holy Spirit. When your life becomes beautiful and righteous before God and your prayers can be heard because you are submitting to the will of God and living as God wants you and calls you to be. And that's what Peter says, this is what we're called for. Some of the most powerful men in history probably never hit the gym. Think of them. Powerful men like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, powerful men, and of course, Jesus Christ. People who changed the world in which we live, not because they hit the gym and had good bustled or were covered in coconut oil, looking good, but because it allowed their lives and inner persons to be changed. People who changed the world through nonviolence, through love, through compassion, forgiveness. So Peter says here that living a compassionate life gives you powerful prayers because God can hear those prayers. I want to tell you and end this sermon by telling you a wonderful story. You may have heard it before and if you have then forgive me. There's a great story to hear again. It's a true story of a very very old Roman monk of the fourth century called Telemachus. And Telemachus was was basically an old man and he got an opportunity to go and visit the capital of the Roman Empire. The jewel in the crown, if you like, Rome. Never been to Rome before, so he arrives in Rome and he's walking through the streets with wonder. He's seeing all these incredible things around him, um, in incredible shops in, in society. He's seeing the temples, he's seeing the, the, um, the, 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 the huge um, arenas, what have you, and, and the place where the, the, the wealthy live. He is absolutely amazed at what he sees. And he looks at these things with wonder. And then he sees a massive crowd going into this huge structure. It clearly looks like to be a stadium, a stadium. So he goes towards and he gets sucked into the crowd and pulled into the inner part of this um, stadium and he finds himself in one of the many tears and he sits down and watches with amazement as these groups of men wearing armour and carrying weapons stand before uh, 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 some Roman dignitary and they shout together we who are about to die salute you and then it begins to dawn on Telemachus what he's watching and he begins to watch as these men hack at each other and thrust at each other and try and kill the other and he watches the injuries and the suffering and the blood soaking into the sand of the arena and he is totally outraged and he stands up in his tear and, and puts his hands up and says in the name of Christ forbear in the name of Christ forbear and nothing happens and so he runs down the stairs towards the edge of the arena lifts his hands up and says in the name of Christ forbear in the name of Christ, forbear, and nothing happens. And so he hops over the parapet and lowers himself down into the arena itself. And he begins to run among the, the, um, uh, the, the, the gladiators fighting, shouting, In the name of Christ, forbear! In the name of Christ, forbear! But nothing happened. People began to think he was part of the act. They began to laugh at him, think, look at this comedic little monk trying to be get between the soldiers and, and, and uh, between the gladiators. They thought he was part of the performance. They laughed at him and they joked. 
But as he carried on and actually began to physically stand between the gladiators, then they began to lose their patience because he was stopping their fun. And people began to boo. And people began to shout, get him off, get him off. When that didn't work, someone shouted, run him through, run him through. And one of the gladiators obliged and thrust his gladius, his small thrusted sword, into the monk's belly. Telemachus sunk upon his knees and cried, in the name of Christ, forbear, and bled out in the arena. A silence dropped over the Roman Colosseum. And then people noticed some movement at the top tier on the right-hand side as some people got up, disgusted, and walked out the stadia. And some others on the right-hand side did the same, and eventually everyone, every spectator, got up and walked out of the Colosseum. And from that day onwards, the 1st of January, 404 AD, there was never a game of gladiatorial contest in the Roman Colosseum. And when the Roman Emperor Honorus heard about this, he forbade the games ever happening again. An old man, an elderly monk, stopped the games in the Roman Colosseum because he was so outraged because Christ was so much in his heart. He couldn't stand to see people hack themselves apart in the name of fun. The power of a beautiful life, the power of you, the power of me, if we allow ourselves, if we submit to each other, but most importantly, if we submit to Christ, submit to Jesus and ask him to change us. You want to bring change to your street, to your family? You want to bring change to your place of work? Do you want to bring change to this planet? It's not going to come by shouting about it or being violent. It starts here. That's where change starts. By becoming a beautiful person of Jesus. And radiating that love and that beauty out. And showing others the nature of true beauty. Showing others the way, the truth and the life. Let's pray. Lord, change us. Lord, shape us. Lord, help us. Amen. Well, this is the third Sunday, uh, sorry, the second Sunday of the month. And the second Sunday is, in fact, always a communion Sunday. So if you haven't prepared already, please find yourself a small receptacle, some wine or rabino, or whatever you want to use, and, um, and some bread. Because we're now going to gather around the Lord's table. We're going to break bread together. And Fiona's here by my side, as she always is. And we're going to share bread together. So do that now as we begin this communion part of the service. The table of the Lord is spread. It is for those who will come and see in the broken bread and poured out wine. Symbols of his life. Shed for us on the cross. And raised again on the third day. The risen Christ is present among his people and it is here that we meet him and this service this opportunity is for those who know him a little and would long to know him more if you want to know more of jesus if you want jesus to change you if you want jesus to forgive you if you want jesus to remake you in his image this service is very much for you it's a service of belief 
a service of trust, a service of feeding upon Christ. And it's something we do physically in the communion service, but it's something we should do every day in our quiet times and spending time with the Lord. Feeding on him so he brings his energy and his goodness into us and changes us from the inside out. Jesus said, come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know that we are all broken and ugly in many ways. Forgive us, Father, for when we haven't submitted to your will. Forgive us when we've gone our own way and demanded this and demanded that, when we've made our lives a mess, or even worse, made the lives of others a mess. Forgive us for the pain we've caused. Forgive us all the sin and wrong in our lives. Forgive us, Lord Jesus, and change us. Forgive us, Lord Jesus, and cleanse us. Forgive us, Lord Jesus, and make us new. And help us to be the people that you want us to be empowered by your spirit, clean slates moulded into your beauty, Lord Jesus. Help us. Remake us. Amen.